0: You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. First Samuel chapter 2. This morning we'll be talking about reverence or ridicule. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning. We're asking you, Lord Jesus, to speak to us through the Word of God once again as you so faithfully do. Lord, we just thank you for that time of worship, Lord, as our hearts have just entered into your presence, Lord, and we're so thankful, Lord, that we can do that anytime, but we're thankful to do that here together with family in Christ this morning. Lord Jesus, would you t- challenge our hearts this morning? Would you uh, rebuke and correct and instruct us in righteousness? Lord Jesus, would you, uh, Lord, just reflect our own hearts in the mirror of your word lord as we see ourselves we pray father that we would be transformed and changed into your image which is what we see in the in the holy word of god speak to us we pray in your name jesus amen amen reverence or ridicule last week we looked at grace and gratitude this week a bit of a contrast in what we're seeing in the Scripture as we make our way through 1 Samuel chapter 2. A.W. Tozer said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that for a few minutes. He went on to say, Worship is pure or base, meaning dishonorable, as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself, and the most important fact about any man is not what he at, any give, at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. He finishes the quote by saying, We tend to, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. That's a powerful quote. And as we start off this morning, I want to remind you guys that what you believe in your heart about God is what affects your behavior. Your life, in other words is informed by what you take in, and what you take in, being processed, comes out of your heart eventually. In the way that you live, the choices, the decisions that you make, the character that you, that you sow, and the habits that you sow that turn into character. So what comes into your mind this morning, church, when you think about God? Did you know that you are, whether you know it or not, moving towards your mental image of God. And this is why we need so desperately today to have the Word of God, the Bible, shaping our understanding of who God is. Not modern-day culture, not a man or a woman or a politician, not a movie, not a Netflix series, not a TV show. We need to know God through His revealed Word, the Bible, this book, this powerful book. In our chapter that we're studying today, we're looking at a contrast between two different kinds of people. And the goal of my Bible study today is to determine what kind of a person you are. In other words, my hope is that as we study doctrine, you will take that doctrine and make it a part of your practice a part of your daily life, and allow God to open your heart and help you to see what kind of a person you are in light of His Word. Now here in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we see that there are two kinds of people. There are those who are either praising God. There it is. They're either praising God, His power, or they're despising His dignity. We're going to cover the first twenty-one verses of the chapter. There are three basic points. If you follow along in your outlines today, we'll be looking at reverence, ridicule, and reward. Let's begin with a beautiful example of a person who's reverencing God in their heart. Verses one through eleven of 1 Samuel chapter two. If we read, and Hannah prayed and said, "My heart rejoices in the Lord; my horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies." Because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly; let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty, me- the bows, I'm sorry, the bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength those who were full have hired themselves out for bread and the hungry have ceased to hunger even the barren has borne seven and she who has many children has become feeble the lord kills and makes alive well that's a comforting statement isn't it this morning isn't it comforting to know that when the lord is done with you he's just going to kill you that's one way of looking at it he makes alive too He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. Wow. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Let's read verse 11 too. It says, Then El- Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. So let's pause right here after this first section of what we're going to be looking at today as we look at a heart of reverence. What a beautiful prayer of praise to the Lord that we have represented here. Hannah, if you remember, gave us a prayer of desperate faith in chapter 1. And the Lord not only heard her prayer, but also answered her request for a child. He remembered her, it says, When Samuel, her son, was weaned and was ready to be given back to the Lord, Elkanah and Hannah, they bring him back to Shiloh, they present him to the Lord, and they turn him over, basically, to God. Now, think about that for a moment. There's a lot that is summed up in those words. Think of all of the emotion in this moment. Here you have a woman who has been barren. She could not have children. Her uh, the, The other wife in this situation, Penina, she was rubbing that in her face. Then Hannah finally got to a place of surrender where she gave it all to the Lord and allowed God to use her life, her situation for the greater good, for God's glory. She promised to give her child back to the Lord. Perhaps even wondering if she would ever have a child to give back to the Lord. But yes, we see the Lord came through in His grace, His mercy. He bestows a child upon her. And here she's following through on her promise. She's following through on her end of the bargain. She's following through on what she promised to do in faith. Should the Lord bless her? That's a powerful testimony. It's a powerful example. And this is a powerful moment in the scriptures. Instead of being sad, which I think (laughs) there must have been some trace of sadness in her heart as she turned this child over to the Lord, leaving him there with Eli. Think about the anxiety involved in that as a parent, as a mother. Hey, I'm actually going to allow my child to be submitted to the authority of someone outside of my home. That's a difficult choice for a parent. Yet she's filled here, instead of sadness and sorrow, with a beautiful expression of praise. Think of the faith that she has. Her prayer can be summarized in three basic categories. First of all, rejoicing in God's salvation, power, and rule. And let's look at that first category right now. She's rejoicing in God's salvation in verses 1 and 2. She says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. This is the New King James Version. She says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. Interesting language, isn't it? Are we to think that she was half the devil, you know, had a horn sticking out of her head or something? Are we to think that there was some sort of an abnormality here? No. This word horn... In the, the, in the language of her day, it represents strength. The horn being the strong part of the animal, you know, a bull with a horn, you never want to grab a bull by the horns, we say. Why? Because that's the dangerous part. That's the strength. All of that bull is geared towards that huge neck muscles and, and that strength being there in his head, and those weapons that God gave him. And so the imagery here is she's praising the Lord. She's expressing to the Lord that He has given her strength. Though she once was weak and powerless, God's grace has strengthened her life. And because of this strength, she says... I smile at my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. Oh, we see Hannah here reveling in, rejoicing and boasting in God's goodness. This is a great illustration of what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, when he said uh, that you know, he, was, he had that thorn in the flesh that he asked the God. Repeatedly, God, take this away from me. And what did God say to him? What did Jesus say to him? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. And in your weaknesses, I am made strong. And, and, and Paul boasted in his weakness there. Why? Because he realized that it was in his weaknesses that God's grace was supplied to him. Oh, this is what Hannah's doing here. She's reveling in, she's boasting in the goodness, the grace of God, his mighty power to save Can I ask you a question tonight, or this morning? (laughs) I'm all mixed up. When's the last time that you thought about your salvation? When's the last time that you thought about how wonderful it is that God has saved your life? That God, in His grace and mercy, has given you Jesus Christ, the Son, and that you have trusted in Him for salvation? When is the last time that you were excited about that? Oh, the Bible tells us in Revelation we're to remember from where we have come from. And and if we need to, we're to repent and we're to return to that first love. That moment when we realize, wow, God, you are so good. You saved a life like mine. Praise you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hey, we need to be more excited about salvation. The fact that God has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness Where we were on a road to hell. Eternal separation from the love and the goodness and grace and mercy of God. And God in His wonderful grace has transferred us now and placed us in the kingdom of light. The kingdom of His love. Oh, that we would never grow apathetic and complacent to stop rejoicing about God's grace in our lives. Amen, church? We are going to live forever in God's presence. And if that doesn't get you excited this morning, well, I have to question your salvation. I have to question whether or not you understand and whether your faith is genuine. See, we must battle apathy in our lives. Oh, this world wants us to get excited about a lot of things. But you and I have salvation to rejoice over we must realize our God is our rock he is holy there is no one like him guys let's get excited about our salvation if we're not excited about God's grace that says more about the condition of our own hearts than anything else Hannah's heart was overwhelmed with salvation and my slide Battery must be out. Thank you. Hannah's heart was overwhelmed with praise for God's salvation in her life. Let me ask you this morning what example of God's grace do you have in your life this morning over which you can rejoice and be excited? What do you need to be rejoicing over? Has God done something recently in your life? Maybe in the, in the last few years? Maybe, maybe in the last few months? Maybe even the last few weeks? God has done something, and you have failed to rejoice over that. Hey, this is the place to rejoice over God's grace. So, so we should worship. We should praise God. Secondly, we rejoice in God's power. We rejoice in God's power. And can I get a change on the slide? Thank you, guys. If we were to summarize, thank you. If we were to summarize verses three through nine, we might say that we see God's amazing and unique ability in those verses. This is this is our God. In verses 3 through 9, we see His unique ability to reverse the course of life. It doesn't matter if you are rich or poor, or what your skin might be, what color it might be. It doesn't matter where you're born, whether you're born in the inner city, or you're born in the country, or which country of the world you're born in. Listen, through faith, God works. His eyes are continually looking for a person whose heart is available and loyal. He is continually looking for someone that he might work on his or her behalf. Second Chronicles verses 16 through 9, it'll be on your screen, says this, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. I love that verse. Think about that. The Lord is looking throughout the earth. He's looking for what? He's looking for availability. He's looking for someone who's looking back at Him and saying, God, what do you want to do with my life? God, I'm willing to lay my life down on the altar. I'm willing to say no to my flesh. And I'm willing to say yes to you because I rejoice in your salvation and your grace. You are so good. You are so awesome. Here I am, Lord, use me. Once God finds that kind of a heart of faith, a heart that is humble and teachable, guess what? He begins to work in and through that person just as he did in Hannah's life. Psalm 138 verse 6 says this, though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Hey, listen, are you here this morning with a broken heart over the circumstances in your life? know this, the Bible promises the Lord is near to you. The Lord is near to those that are broken and humbled. But if you've got a proud heart that's rejecting the Lord, and, and, and you, you think that you've got it together and you're going to make it happen, and, and you've got, you got your plans and ambitions that you're putting first, hey listen, God is going to resist you. James chapter 4 and verse 6 says this, but God gives more grace... Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Hey, over and over in Scripture, we see this theme. God is going to resist the proud, but give grace to the humble. In in James 4.10, he says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. What does that mean to be humble? If this is the promise that we will humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift us up, what does it mean to be humble? Is this some sort of a, a, an ingredient that we can find that will give us power to make God do what we want? No, not necessarily. That's not what humility is. Humility is a state of the heart. It means that you're honest about who you are and what you're capable of doing. You see, humility is simply the ability to be completely aware of your need for God. That's what humility is. To be completely aware of your own need for God. It's been said that humility is a byproduct of walking in a relationship with Jesus Christ. (laughs) As you're walking along with Jesus, you realize how awesome and wonderful He is, and how little and insignificant you are. And you begin to realize, wow, I I can't do anything apart from you, Lord. That's what humility is. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you realize how low you are and how much you need him. You guys all remember John the Baptist, right? What were his words? What did he say about Jesus? He said, I must decrease. He must increase. Hannah understood this. Hannah understood her position in relation to God. So did Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. You remember her prayer. It's very similar to Hannah's prayer. So did Elizabeth and Zachariah, the parents of John the Baptist. They were barren too, and God visited them in their, uh, in their difficulty. They realized we desperately need, and, and we desperately have to cling by faith to our God. We cannot forget this truth. God has the power to change things in our lives for His glory. And that leads me to this question. Do we rejoice in God's ability to change the course of our lives? Are we rejoicing in that this morning? That that, that God has a unique power and ability to change things. Man, I look at my own life. The, The different things that I was living for as a young man. And how God came in, and in His sovereignty, in His love, He instantly changed the direction and course of my life. Yes, it happened on a football field for me. It happened as I was there playing in an all-star game, or about to play in an all-star game for northern Nevada. I grew up around Reno, Nevada. And there I got chosen to play in one of the all-star games for, for northern Nevada, football game. And and I was going to be starting at linebacker for that game. And I was excited because, you see, I had a couple of coaches from colleges that were going to be watching that game. And I was hoping that it would produce, hopefully, a scholarship for me. I didn't have the money to pay for college. I was hoping to get a scholarship. And I remember I was looking forward to that game. And, and the day before the game, we were there practicing at the field that we were going to be playing at. And in a random moment, one of the coaches said, hey, I need somebody out here for the scout team real quick. And so I volunteered and jogged in. And as I was on that play running down the field, I was sprinting down the field, I slipped in a random puddle of water and broke my ankle. In a spiral fracture, I came down on it like this and all my weight on it and snapped it in a spiral fracture. I didn 't even know it was broken. I walked around the whole day with ice on it, just hoping it would go down so I could play in the game the next day. It didn't go down. It just got bigger and bigger throughout the day. So I finally went and got it uh, X-rayed, and sure enough, it was a spiral fracture. had to have a plate put in it and screws and everything, and didn't get to play in the game. I was devastated. I was devastated, even to the point, see, this is where I was so messed up. I had my hope put in that thing, playing in that game, getting that scholarship, going to college, and, and, and doing that, those things. My hope was so much in that, that I was actually even suicidal after I did this. I went through the surgery and everything, and I thought, man, what, what's going on, God? Don't you love me? Why aren't you letting me do, why aren't you letting me accomplish my dreams, Lord? And, and it, came that it came about that God actually used that event to change what I did after high school. I joined the Marine Corps. And, 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 it, and through the Marines, got me plugged into Calvary Chapel, where I ended up going on staff as a pastor. And, and here I am today, guys, because of God's sovereign hand in my life. Now, at the time, was I happy? No. No. At the moment that that happened, did I think that that was the best thing for me? No, I didn't. But I failed to realize that my Father in heaven, who loves me infinitely, knew exactly what He was doing. And I rejoice now in His unique power to change the course of lives. Church, do you rejoice in His power to change lives? where if you've grown complacent or perhaps even cynical... Have you become cynical and you're at the end of yourself and you're going, man, I just don't think God loves me. I just don't think God loves me because of the things that are going on in my life right now. Hey, listen, Hannah was able to rejoice in God's ability to change the course of her life. Can you do the same? If you can, listen, I believe that that says a lot about who you think God is. It says a lot about who you believe in. Whether or not he is truly good as he reveals himself to be, and it also says a lot about who you really are. Now the last part of Hannah's prayer of praise this morning was that she was rejoicing in God's rule, verse 10. She rejoices in God's rule, and if you'll look with me very quickly there in First Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, let's read that verse again it says. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. So Hannah's rejoicing in God's rule in verse 10. We actually see her speaking a word of prophecy. Verse 10 is a word of prophecy that pertains to the future of both Israel's anointed kings as well as the future of God's supreme anointed king. The Messiah. That word there in verse 10 for anointed one, those two words in English, is one word in Hebrew. It's Mashiach. And that is Messiah in our word in, in, in English. Okay, Mashiach. And that word for you Bible students refers to Jesus Christ. If you are a Bible student this morning, what you see here in verse 10 is what is a principle called dual fulfillment prophecy. A dual fulfillment prophecy is where you have a prophetic word that is given, in this case by Hannah, in which there are basically two fulfillments of that prophecy. The first fulfillment is usually a lesser fulfillment, or it's fulfilled to a lesser degree, and then it's, but that fulfillment, that lesser fulfillment always speaks to the greater fulfillment which will happen in the future. There are several examples of this in the Bible. Here's one that we're looking at right now. Verse 10. The lesser fulfillment is that Saul is going to become anointed as king of Israel. And David as well. And then the the, the line of kings through the tribe of Judah. That's the lesser fulfillment of Hannah's prophecy. The greater fulfillment, obviously, is that we know in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God states that the scepter will never depart from the tribe of Judah looking forward to the king who would be eternal that eternal king that hannah is also referring to the messiah that's jesus christ so the greater fulfillment there in the future one of the best examples of dual fulfillment prophecy in the bible is the olivet discourse found in matthew mark and luke the, the, the three gospels the synoptic gospels i'm sorry not synoptic that's not the right word but you get the point. Those three Gospels, okay? We'll get the right word later. Jesus prophesied, though, in there, on the Olivet Discourse, of the destruction of Jerusalem in his message to the disciples. Now, everything that Jesus prophesied happened in 70 AD, though to a lesser degree, a lesser fulfillment of what we know is going to happen in the Great Tribulation. Okay, That is going to be the second greater fulfillment so here in 1 Samuel, Hannah looks forward in anticipation to not just the coming kings of Israel, but more importantly, of Jesus. She's rejoicing in the fact that one day, guess what? All the enemies of the Lord, every sickness, every disease, every rebellious thought, every rebellious uh, program that, that stands up and says, you are not God." Hey, all of those enemies, they will one day be defeated. Every enemy that hates what is good and right will be broken and defeated. And she is rejoicing because one day, Jesus Christ will set up a truly righteous government. Think about that for a moment this morning. Have you thought about the fact that one day, Jesus Christ is actually going to rule this earth, and He's going to reverse the curse? He's going to reverse the curse that is eating away at humanity today. His kingdom is going to come. He's going to reign in person. He's going to rule and reign and judge this world in purity and in righteousness. That's amazing when you think about that. Think about it. No more corruption. No more lies and deceit. No more greed as the main motive for instituting laws in our land. We're going to have a king who's going to be able to see the situations that are so troublesome today in our world. And he's going to be able to cut right through all the lies and deceit and go to the motives of men's hearts and understand what's really going on. And he's going to pronounce judgments that are accurate and true and just. That means fair, absolutely fair. Can you imagine that day, guys? That is something to rejoice over. But the better thing to rejoice over is Jesus Christ's rule in your heart and my heart right now today. You see, because Jesus rules in our hearts, we're going to be transformed, the Bible says, in a twinkling of an eye, in a moment. And this flesh will put on the incorruptible. And one day we'll be coming with Jesus to rule and to reign in his earthly kingdom. And we're not going to be tempted by the things of the flesh either. We're not going to have to deal with sickness and disease and death that comes from living in a world that's under the curse. Church, we need to rejoice. We need to be those that are worshiping and praising God along with Hannah and saying, God, praise you for your amazing plan. We now transition in our message into the exact opposite of what we see in Hannah's heart, which was a heart of reverence. And we're now introduced to Eli's sons. They have a heart that is filled with ridicule. Verses 12 through 17. Follow along with me in your Bibles. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then, get this, he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, And the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So pretty good chances of getting everything, I think, here. And the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. So basically, they're stealing from the Lord here. Stealing from God. That that, that sacrifice that was being offered to the Lord. Verse 15, also, before they burned the fat the priest's servant would come and say to the man of sacrificed, give me meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Verse 17, therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. So get this. Here's what's happening here. The Israelites were commanded by God to give the burnt offering to the Lord. And that was really the best portion of the animal. It was put on the altar with all of its fat and everything, and it was burned in its entirety before the Lord. Now, a portion of that would be kept back, it would be waved before the Lord. But here we see that these corrupt priests, Eli's sons, they were coming, and before the best parts were given to the Lord, they're coming in and saying, no, cut that part off, give it to me, and I'll take it. And if the person says, well, wait a second, according to the book of Leviticus, we're supposed to burn this to the Lord first. That that corrupt priest was basically saying, you know what? I don't care what God's word says. I don't care what the holy book of Leviticus lays out. I'm taking it because I want it. It's mine. They were extorting, they were robbing, they were abusing their position. And they would take it by force. So that's why verse 17 says that the sin of these young men was very great before the Lord. Why? Because they were causing the Israelites to abhor the offerings of the Lord. They hated coming up to present their offerings to God because of who was there in leadership. It was a horrible thing. Now, we can draw a lot of comparisons from the Word of God to today's church, from this passage, where unfortunately, there are many men serving in positions of authority within God's church, the greater church, who have never been called by God's. To be in those positions and they do not see their calling as a high and holy calling which is what it is and because of that the church suffers there are people that actually abhor coming to church because they know what they're going to have to go through they know what they're going to have to do in being there in that place man and it can be so grieving to the heart of God can't it despising the Lord's character is what we see them doing in verse 12. We know that these guys did not know the Lord. says it right there in that verse. They didn't know the Lord. Their behavior stands in sharp contrast to Hannah, who does know the Lord. She has a heart of worship and reverence, but these guys, they're despising the Lord's unchanging character. You know, the Bible reveals God is a God of love first and foremost. Everything else that God is flows out of His love, His holiness, His justice, His, uh, His, uh, uh, I'm sorry, His truthfulness. All of these things they flow out of God's love. But here, these guys are—they're despising God's unchanging character. They, d- they could give a care less. They don't even know Him. Not only that, they're also despising their calling. They're called to the priesthood. As I said before, that's a high and holy calling. Yet because they do not fear the Lord, they despise that calling. They become proof that just because one has the title of being a priest or being a pastor, that doesn't qualify you for the job. As Christians, we understand that it is not the calling, it is not the title that makes the man, it is the character That makes the man. Let me say that again. It is the character that makes a man or the woman. What is that man or woman pursuing in their life? What are you pursuing in your life this morning? Are you pursuing the Lord? Is it your passion to know Him and to make Him known? Or does it seem that your greatest passion in life is simply a self-serving one? A self-serving passion. Hey, listen, church, we've got to get this right of all people. Of all people, we're called to reverence the Lord. We're called to be filled with a heart of fear for the Lord. Not a heart that is, you know, unhealthily fearful of God, but a heart that says, God, you're worth it. You are worth laying my life down for. You're the only one I'm living to please. And so, God, I present myself to you as a living sacrifice. Everything that I'm doing, God, it's yours. How can I do this to show people my passion is you? In the end, our choice will lead us to an eternal reward. That's our last point this morning. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Can I just pause right here and just say something? I love the fact that... That the Bible acknowledges that children can minister to the Lord. (laughs) Do you know even a child can minister to the Lord? We had a great concert here this past Sunday or Thursday night, by the way. If you missed it, we had over 750 people packed into this sanctuary, standing room only. My kids were right down here in the front. Yes, and they lost some hearing. I know they did. But my six-year-old, seven-year-old son talked to me after that concert and he shared something with me about what one of the lead singers from one of the bands had shared. And, and, and it was amazing to me to see how his little heart was impacted by what was shared. The Lord shared a word with my seven-year-old son that night that I know made an impact to his heart because he's still talking about it today. That is so cool. The Lord speaks, and and, and some people criticize us because we want to baptize children. I'll tell you why we baptize children. Because they are near and dear to the heart of God, and they understand the Lord. It it, it can be so simple. It it is so simple that even a child can understand it, and I love that. And so sometimes I think, parents, we take for granted, no, our kids don't understand things yet. We're not going to get into those areas because they don't understand things. Hey, get into them, please. Because our kids need to have a reason for why they believe what they believe. We need to be talking to them about these tough things in life and what's going on and giving them real answers, offering them the hope that the Bible provides, which is a real hope and a real answer for some of the things that they struggle with. Because if we don't do it, guess what? They're going to leave our houses someday, and they're going to be sitting in a college class somewhere under a professor who's an atheist who's going to give them a different reason. And that's dangerous. So, Samuel ministered before the Lord. Let's remember, even as a child, he did that. Verse 19. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year, when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman? For the loan that was given to the Lord, then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah, so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Notice that reverence is not without reward. Let me say it again, church. Reverence is not without reward. Respect for God's power results in reaping the rewards of faith. The fear of God fills our lives with the fruit of faithfulness. I love that. I love that. As we close it out today, I want to read to you from Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. We read that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, according to God's word, who cannot lie, all will bow one day. The question is, will you bow your knee willingly here now? Out of a heart that says, God, you deserve my love. God, you deserve praise. God, your grace is amazing. And I love you. Or will you wait Until you have no other choice but to recognize the greatness, the holiness, the righteousness, and the majesty of King Jesus. Let's pray.